Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio, powered by Postano. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports on a global scale. Glad you could join us this week. We are very excited to be powered by Postano. Follow them online at Pastano.com or on Twitter at Pastano. That's P-O-S-T-A-N-O. Coming up on our show this week, we've got some great guests. Rand Gatlin, the big five conferences in the NCAA are likely to only get stronger after a recent vote. Rand Gatlin, who is a terrific reporter with Yahoo Sports, joins us to discuss the future of the NCAA. Marshall Glickman, international sports expert and the president of G2 Strategic, stops by to discuss whether or not a midseason tournament would work in the NBA. We also get his thoughts on soccer and the growth of soccer after the World Cup. Maury Brown, our friend from Forbes, he covers baseball primarily. Uh, he's going to join us to handicap the three finalists for the Major League Baseball commissioner job. We know Bud Selig is retiring. It's down to three finalists. Who's likely to emerge as the next commissioner of Major League Baseball? We'll also discuss with Maury some bold trade deadline moves by several contending teams. We'll talk baseball with Maury Brown coming up on today's show. A couple of other notes. You can visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sports businessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Well, some big headlines in the last week or so. Ed O'Bannon, the verdict is in. The NCAA loses. But before we put those trust funds aside for all of the college football and basketball players and anyone else who has their likeness used, the NCAA is going to appeal this ruling. That process could take a few years. We'll have more on that on future editions of Sports Business Radio. An ugly scene in racing this past weekend. Tony Stewart strikes a driver with his car. The driver dies at the scene. Tony Stewart does not participate in Sunday's race. I'm sure there's going to be more news from that, and we'll cover that closely. But just an, uh, an ugly scene. And unfortunately, uh, something that Tony Stewart has been associated with before. So how is NASCAR going to react to this? How is the racing world going to deal with this? Will this turn into a criminal investigation? It's going to be interesting to watch after the mishap this weekend in New York with Tony Stewart striking a driver and the driver dying at the scene. Finally, an incredible ending to the PGA Championship. One of the best endings I've watched and uh, it's just what golf needs. As Tiger Woods doesn't make the cut, he's fading more and more into oblivion. As we've talked on this show before, Tiger Woods is the household name that the casual fan engages with. But with names like Phil Mickelson and Rory McIlroy and Ernie Els and even Ricky Fowler in the mix this weekend, other golfers, a crowded leaderboard. It was an exciting finish at the PGA Championship. Just what the golf world needed. All right, coming up next, Rand Gatlin will join us. We'll talk some NCAA with him. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back.
Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pistano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pistano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pistano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Rand Gatlin with Yahoo Sports. He's a terrific reporter that's been on this show before, providing legal insight, also investigative insight. We've talked a lot about college sports when he's joined us before, and there was big happenings that took place last week. Rand, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for having me, Brian. So the NCAA board voted last week to allow more autonomy for the five power conferences. You've been on the show with me literally for the last few years. We've talked about kind of the development of the NCAA, where it's headed. To me, this seemed to be a large step in putting it in a place where we thought it would eventually go. Explain what this 16 to 2 vote for the power five conferences, which comprises of 64 schools plus Notre Dame meant. Well, it's a, it's a big development, as you pointed out. And, you know, it's one of those things I'm sure we'll get a chance to dig into kind of specifics of what it means. But what they essentially said was the Power Five conferences in Notre Dame have the ability to uh, vote for things on their own, uh, on their own volition for supporting student athletes in the academic and career support realm in terms of nutrition, time demand, max financial aid. So things that the smaller schools were stopping the bigger schools from doing in the past, saying, look, we can't afford these things, uh, or we think it creates a competitive equity imbalance, uh, now the Power Five conferences in order to be able to do those things. Some of what we might be looking at moving forward in that realm is restrictions on the interactions between agents and players, for instance. The ability for players to make money outside of their uh, sport and school, so the ability to use perhaps their likeness in order to make money. But basically what they're saying is, look, Power 5 conferences in Notre Dame, you have the ability to now make decisions without the smaller schools weighing you down with their concerns about finances and monetary constraints. It's a big deal in that regard, but obviously it is only symbolic at this point until they start putting things into action. A number of questions remain as to how impactful this will really be for student-athletes. So it looks like they can submit their own legislation by October 1st. They have... uh, in an ideal world for the Big Five conferences, it would be enacted at the January 2015 NCAA convention in Washington, D.C. We've kind of been down this road before where some of this has been proposed. It never got enacted. Do you think that this will finally go through and be enacted starting in January of 2015? 
I think right now what the conferences are dealing with, and, and frankly, you know, it may be too little too late. I think the Power Five conferences knew they needed to make a move, but they've been seeing this strain coming directly at them for years. This was a move that they needed to make out of necessity. Right now, there are a number of court cases, congressional inquiries, et cetera, that are going on questioning whether NCAA athletics, the mission that they've said they stand for, is in fact the mission that they're carrying out. And, you know, right now it looks very clearly like some kind of uh, judicial intervention or congressional intervention is going to take place in order to create more equity in the space for these uh, college athletes who are producing so much revenue for a relatively small uh, number of people at the top of the food chain here, namely those administrators and others uh, who get these multi-million dollar salaries, ADs, coaches, etc. So, you know, what will they get passed in, in these votes? I think they're going to get passed everything they think they need to get passed to meet the bare minimum requirements of surviving as they uh, are currently constituted or as close to it as possible. They're making moves uh, in order to ensure their survival. That's it. When you listen to Steve Patterson, who folks in Portland, I'm sure, are very familiar with uh, as the former president of the Blazers, now he is the AD at the University of Texas. He'll say out of one side of his mouth that uh, I don't believe that schools uh, at the top of the food chain, the Texases of the world, generating over $100 million in revenue per year, should have to carry or cater to the smaller schools that can't afford to deal with us or don't make money. Why should we have to do that? I don't believe in socialism. Now, the other side of his mouth says, I don't think the 4% of players that do make money, uh, you know, above and beyond that which we're giving them already, should, should uh, or I'm sorry, I don't think that the, uh, they should have the ability to collect their money and, and, and not support the other 96%. They should support everybody because otherwise Olympic sports are at risk, etc. I mean, he's saying literally the exact opposite thing about two different realms. Um, and, you know, it doesn't come off to me as anything other than pure greed. It's absolute pure greed. So the system is changing, but it has not changed uh, to a fundamental enough extent to eliminate the concerns I think they had before this autonomy vote. You still have a bunch of power brokers at the top of the system making outlandish amounts of money while the kids are told to take what little we give you and accept it. So now they're going to try and give them a little bit more to fend off the wolves. I'm not sure it's going to work, but it'll be very fascinating watching this play out as they make a last-minute effort to uh, stop any outside intervention. Joined by Rand Gatlin of Yahoo Sports. You can find him on Twitter. A great follow there, at Rand underscore Gatlin. That's G-E-T-L-I-N. Yeah, you mentioned fending off the wolves. This feels a lot to me like you know the student-athletes formed a union and – there have been a lot of wolves, as you call them, that have been closing in on the NCAA, and we've seen everything from, okay, you can have unlimited food to, uh, you know, maybe we're going to give you the 2000 to $5,000 per player stipend. Um, there could be other things in the works. Will that be enough at the end of the day to offset? Like you said, when you see the millions of dollars that these programs are generating, and the amount of money that the coaches are making and everyone else is making from TV rights deals and, and things of that nature. You know, I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, Brian. My sense is, though, the answer is no. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, when you reach a tipping point, a lot of times in, in history, when you look at things like this that happen, uh, not that players are necessarily being oppressed, but they're certainly being subjugated 
in, in the truest sense of the definition, insofar as these adults, people who run the space, are saying, look, athletes, we know what's best for you, and so we're going to impose our rules and regulations upon you, and, uh, and you know, you should understand at the end of the day, we've got your best interests at heart. And the players are looking at it, uh, guys like Johnny Manziel, saying, well, wait a second, I generated, according to some studies, hundreds of millions of dollars for, for Texas A&M University, and I got crucified for selling my signature. How is this uh, just or fair, you know, in any way, shape, or form? And, and, and it's not. The answer is it's not at all. And so, you know, when you come back and say, okay, well, listen, guys, I'll tell you what. Now we can have 2000 to $5,000. How about that? Does, that? does that do it? I just told you I make hundreds of millions of dollars for your university. No, that doesn't do it. Now, I want my fair share of the pie. And I think that now with the congressional hearings that have been going on and Ramogi Huma and the National Collegiate Players Association and then the, uh, the College Players Kappa College Association, or I'm sorry, Collegiate Association, College Athletes Players Association, whatever it is, Kappa, the, the Players Union, they're, they're all of these organizations now that are standing up and fighting for players' rights. And none of them are going to say $2,000 to $5,000 is enough. Now, you know, various uh, organizations are going to be interested in incremental um, improvements as opposed to no improvements at all. But it's, it's certainly not going to stop people like you and I from looking at the logic behind these decisions and saying $5,000 is mince me. It's not enough considering what some of these guys do. And if you have a Johnny Manziel or a Cam Newton or any of these other Marcus Mariota, any of these other fantastic athletes who generate so much value in the market for their universities, local economies, et cetera, I don't think that this is going to stop until they're sharing to a sufficient enough extent. And where that line is, we don't know, but it's certainly far beyond $2,000 to $5,000 until they're sharing in a sufficient enough extent of that which they create in the market. And we're a long way away from that. So I don't think they're going to be able to fend off the wolves. I don't think that they're doing enough, but I think that they, in their minds, they're trying to do everything in their power to preserve their model as it stood yesterday. And, uh, and you know, I just don't see it lasting very much longer. We said, I think, when we first got together three years ago, this is going to change within five years, and everybody thought we were crazy. Well, it's changing. And, you know, you can see it happening. This is not a surprise to you or I uh, or anybody who follows this stuff closely. It's They've held power for a very long time, but because of a number of forces now, they're at a point where they no longer get to stubbornly stand there and say, this is the way it's going to be because we said so. Things are changing. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're reacting to the marketplace, so to speak. Uh, four-year scholarship guarantees are on the agenda. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there, Rand, that don't even realize that if you're a college athlete, you don't get a four-year scholarship. You're going year to year. So, you know, that would be certainly a plus. Also, uh, long-term health insurance is being discussed. Those two items to me would seem to be Big wins for college athletes. Again, you've got to put the Johnny Manzels and the Tim Tebow's and the Reggie Bushes uh, in a different category. They're probably never going to get equal value for what they're getting at their uh, collegiate university. But for the other athletes, including rowers and soccer players and tennis players and baseball players and golfers, this has got to be a, a big win for those athletes. Yeah, certainly. But I think you're still dealing with a situation in which the true economics of this space are obscured from our vision. You know, they want us to believe, college administrators, that is, and those that want to support the current vision of the NCAA, they want us to believe that all of these players are losing them money. Well, in America, when businesses lose money, what happens to them? Unless they're large banks, uh, they don't get bailouts. 
from the government. <laughs> Everyone else fails, and uh, it's called creative destruction. Certain things have to fall. You have to learn from their mistakes and the lessons that they teach on their way out the door in order to create something better. If you look at the uh, Fortune 500 companies from 60, 70 years ago to present day, very few of those that existed 60, 70 years ago exist today. Uh, and that's because, you know, things change and, and it's okay uh, for things to fail in a capitalist society. You need that. So if a sport is not generating enough revenue to be self-sufficient, why in the world do we continue to prop them up without asking questions as to are there other models for them to exist? For instance, the University of Oregon, when I was there, the lacrosse team was a club team. And, you know, did they work hard to generate the money they needed in order to travel across country and play in games? Absolutely. Uh, harder than, you know, the football team and the basketball team? Sure. But that's because they weren't generating revenue. And guess what? They were okay with that. They still loved their sport. They were very, very good. They were competitive on a national level in their uh, division. And, you know, that was okay with them. And they still got to participate in sports, and they had a great time. And they got all the same or, or most of the same uh, experiences that a lot of the kids that were playing funded sports were. I don't see why rowers and gymnasts and wrestlers can't go in that direction if their sports are not generating revenue. I take great exception with this notion that we have to prop up those sports no matter what uh, and just because. You know, when you look at how much money the college coaches are making, Nick Saban making $7 million a year, and then you say there's not enough money to pay the football players, but we have to keep them subjugated in terms of their earnings or what they're being compensated with in order to support the, support the rowers and gymnasts. It doesn't ring true. No, you don't. Cut Saban's money. Well, we can't do that. We have to pay Saban market value. It's just, it's an absolutely ludicrous system. So, you know, look across the board. There, there, wherever there's a will, there's a way. And this, this notion, I think, um, Mike Slive spoke to it yesterday to, uh, Bruce Feldman on Fox Sports One, uh, in a sit down. He said, look, I think a lot of this is just people are fearful of the unknown and that's it. And, you know, it's not that we can't get this stuff done. It's just that they're scared of change. And I think that's very true. I think these people are just incredibly scared of change. They've got cushy jobs. They get to go out and play golf. You know, do some people in college athletics work their tails off? Sure. But I've known a lot of people in college athletics administration, and I promise you, 99% of us out there in general society would love to have their jobs. They're awesome. They get to go to sports events. They get free swag. They get to go out golfing in the middle of the day and call it work. I mean, it's really actually a pretty cool gig, and a lot of people aspire to enter into that industry for those reasons. So, you know, things can change. They can work a little bit harder, take a little bit less, or work harder and produce more, and then you can keep your same share. But in either case, uh, the kids, whoever they may be, and I don't, I don't think that, you know, your average regular kid on a football team is worth nothing. I think there are studies out there that say a lot of these kids at larger schools are worth, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars beyond their scholarship value. So, I'd like to see, you know, the actual numbers bear out. And the only way that's going to happen is if the market becomes a little bit more free. And I think we're definitely headed in that direction. Yeah, I mean, we've joked on this show for a long time that it's a free market everywhere except for the NCAA. And you're right that yep. there are people that work in the industry that, you know, they live in this little insulated bubble where they've put a cocoon around themselves and protected themselves from uh, ever having that cushy job taken away. And, um, you bring up a lot of terrific points. Another part of this uh, vote last week that was interesting to me, there's a new 80-member voting panel, which will include 15 current players. They're really going to be the ones that determine the policies for the leagues. The athletic directors are also going to have a much larger representation than before when presidents had a lot more power. So there's certainly a power shift here. Um, how do you think that's going to 
change things going forward with that representation, the 80 people that comprise that, I guess, board or a ruling committee? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. When you have presidents kind of steering the ship, or at least ostensibly steering the ship, I think in a lot of cases, um, a famous example is uh, Gordon Gee at Ohio State saying, uh, with the Jim Trussell thing, you know, I'm just glad Coach Trussell didn't fire me. Right. Well, you know, it was a joke and it was in jest, but actually there was a lot of there was a lot of truth to that. You know, who was bigger in the state of Ohio than Jim Trussell at the time? Gordon Gee certainly wasn't, and he understood. You know, it was the tail wagging the dog. So, I think when you look at this 80 member panel, if it's comprised mostly of uh, athletic directors and those at the highest levels of athletic administration, at the very least, now uh, there's some transparency as to who's really steering the ship, and you don't have the tension or as much tension between those who uh, seek to pretend that academics are still first and foremost in this enterprise, first and foremost concern. Now we can kind of get to the point of saying, look, uh, academics are important, but let's be real. This is a business. We're running it like a business. Let's make good business decisions. And I think to that extent, it'll change a lot. In terms of the players' involvement, there's now, as, as, I, uh, as I understand, 20% of that group will be comprised of um, athletes. This is very interesting. This is something that you take it a couple layers deeper than I think most people analyze that. But in politics, a lot of times those who get into positions like like the positions these students are going to be able to inhabit, they're not rabble rousers. They're the ones who play by the rules. And therefore, the people in positions of power are very happy to have them there because they stick to the script. And if it's if it's 20% of that group is all people who are contrarians that are looking at the same, wait a second, this isn't enough. We're going to fight in a radical way for players' rights, then I think that's a meaningful voting block. But I don't think that's what it's going to be. I mean, if you look at SACS, for instance, the Student Athlete Advisory Committee, I think that's what it is, they voted down or voted against full-year scholarships, saying, well, you know, I think as student athletes, it's a good thing for us to have year-by-year scholarships because it keeps us engaged in the process of, you know, being students, et cetera. That's terrible representation. Horrible representation. If my representation did something like that to me, I'd fire them immediately. And, you know, but those are the types of kids that they have on these athletic advisory committees. Now, there have been other kids on that committee that have spoken out and said, look, we were muddled uh, by the NCAA. In fact, we had to clear through them or some mechanism what we were going to say, in essence, get approval to say what it is that we were going to say. Well, that's not, that, that's not independence. That's not these kids speaking out. For their uh, on behalf of their own interests without the influence of the larger organization. So my point is, you know, a lot of this stuff just looks like window dressing. And it sounds good, but I have always implored people to look a little bit deeper. Don't just take what they're telling you at face value. And that's a very important lesson that I've learned, you know, throughout my life, whether it be through law school or investigative journalism or just the course of normal reporting. You know, people will tell you anything, but uh, you really need to dig down and see what is actually occurring in the space to get a really good concept of, of how it's going to pan out in the end. And I am not at all sure that these students on these uh, voting committees are going to have any real measurable amount of power, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope that uh, I'm absolutely wrong, and they, and they do go out there and fight for student-athlete uh, rights, and things get better at a much quicker clip. Yeah, one of the reasons for doing this show for 10 years is we're trying to dig deeper into the real stories that take place in the in the business side of sports. Um, last question for you. So we talked about how this vote mainly affects the top 64 schools in the richest five leagues. So that's the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10, the SEC, 
and the Pac-12. But in the meantime, you've got 75 schools that are outside of the Power Five conferences. How do they respond to all of this? Is it business as usual? Is there jealousy? Um, what happens for them? I think that they've basically kind of uh, accepted it. I think where we were at with this Power Five move is Bowlesby, Slive, uh, Delaney, and and their ilk saying, look, guys, uh, you're at the end of the road. We've been trying to play this, you know, the way that we've always played it for a while, and you keep putting up roadblocks for us, and you don't understand. Our entire system is about to be crushed. So you've got two choices. You either approve autonomy now, or we are going to cede from the NCAA, and we will start our own deal. And Slive has spoken to that on many occasions. People ask me, he said, look, we're going to have to look at other alternatives. So I think, you know, the answer is the rest of those schools are just resigned to the fact that this is what it is. You don't have the power that you thought you had. You want to be on an equal playing field, uh, Boise State or Western Kentucky with Alabama or Oregon, but you're not, and you haven't been for a very long time. So let's quit playing games. Give us the power to go out there and make changes that we think will save us from congressional intervention or, uh, you know, severe reactions from these court cases after the fact. And, uh, you know, otherwise we're just going to go elsewhere. And, and that's what happened. So those schools have to accept it because they still want to be involved in the NCAA basketball tournament, right? You still have small schools knocking off big schools, the Cinderella stories. And frankly, that's a big part of the reason why we watch that tournament. It's awesome. Every year we see a Siena or, you know, some small school uh, knocking off a date and knocking off one of the big uh, schools from the power conferences. And it's, it's always fun, especially, you know, in America, given our ethic to see uh, David knock off Goliath. And, um, and so that part of it is really special. And I think that, you know, to the extent that we can preserve that aspect of that competition, that's great. But I think the power five conferences understand too, look, if we go and we play our own tournament without the small schools, we're still going to make a heck of a lot of money and that's okay. You know, and, and if we have to do that, if you force us to do that, we'll do that. Um, and so at this point, you know, smaller schools understand, listen, we still have some involvement. We may not have as much power as we uh, once thought we did, but at least we're still in the game. And that has to be enough for them right now because they were running out of choices. Always great information and insight from Rand Gatlin, reporter and legal analyst for Yahoo Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Rand underscore Gatlin. That's G-E-T. L-I-N. Rand, thanks for taking the time to join us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Brian. Always love joining you. Thanks. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Powered by Postano. I came in like a rain. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. 
We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With the goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Marshall Glickman. He is the founder of G2 Strategic. He's the former president of the Portland Trailblazers. We've had him on this show before. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Hey, Brian. Long time. I know. It has been a long time. Good to get you back on the show. Let's start off by talking about a proposal, a theory that NBA Commissioner Adam Silver floated recently for a midseason tournament in the NBA. Uh, a lot of people think the NBA season is too long. Adding a midseason tournament would be interesting. What are your thoughts on this concept and whether or not it can work? Well, I think it's I think it's fresh, and I think the NBA needs bold and fresh thinking. They need to constantly reinvent themselves, and so I think it's uh, certainly a concept worth pursuing. Obviously, there are you know numerous logistical considerations, particularly as it relates to the games played in the NBA regular season and the long grind of that schedule, but my sense is that those issues ultimately can be resolved. So I like it a lot. Uh, you know, this is very similar to the Copa del Rey in, uh, in Spain. Uh, most of the national basketball leagues in uh, Europe have mid-season tournaments, cup competitions. Uh, in the U.S., soccer fans are familiar with the U.S. Open Cup. It's the same idea. In that scenario, you got lower division teams also that get to play. So back when we had the Portland Timbers before they went to MLS, right, and we were a, basically a second division A-League club, we got to play in the U.S. Open Cup and sometimes play against MLS teams. So that's kind of an interesting concept. I'm not sure exactly how it work, would work. Personally, I like the idea, you know, you have, what is it in the NBA, Brian, six divisions? I believe so, yes. Yeah. So, you know, the divisions don't have any meaning, though, really, right? I mean, they're not really um, – uh, what really matters is the conferences in the NBA as far as, you know, where that ends up in the playoffs. So um, I think this would be an opportunity maybe to take the six division winners from the prior year and put them into a single elimination or round robin tournament tournament format in a neutral side. I guess they're talking about Vegas. Personally, I like that a lot. I think something like that would bring a lot of interest, and it would also give more meaning to being a division winner from the year prior. I mean, you do a lot of work internationally. That's where you do most of your work now. So it seems like you know the United States sports are kind of last to the party on this type of midseason tourney concept. Well, yeah, but. We play a lot more games over here, so that's why. I mean, in Europe, you know, Euroleague, uh, the, the 
EuroLeague regular season is 10 games. <laughs> and then there's a kind of a second round they call the top 16, which is 14 games. And then that leads to playoffs, which is eight teams. And then it leads to a final four, just like the final four in college basketball here. Um, so I'm not sure it's right to say or even relevant that, you know, we're late to the party. I think this is Adam coming in uh, and trying to bring some new, fresh, bold ideas to the table. And I think this one, you know, there's going to be naysayers and skeptics, and rightfully they're going to point out the long grind of the NBA season and how you can really make this work, you know, in and around the all-star break. But I would imagine that all the logistical questions can be worked out. Of course, I'm sure what the players would like uh, is to reduce the number of regular season games in exchange for adding this tournament. That's probably not feasible because you're talking about revenue. And I don't think the owners are going to support a concept that um, you know would reduce revenue. But I think there's probably a way to make this work. I like it a lot. Marshall Glickman is my guest. He's the founder of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. The last conversation I had with former NBA commissioner David Stern earlier this year, right before he left office, I asked him about European expansion. And he thought it was realistic that there may be an NBA team in Europe in the next decade. What do you think about that? Again, as someone who spends lots of time over in Europe, do you think that we may see NBA basketball in Europe? London, perhaps, you know, because London is a, you know, a a realistic uh, flight from the East coast. Um, And it's a huge market and they've got a first class venue in the O2. Um, Continental Europe, personally, I don't think so. I used to be more, positive about that possibility, but the cultures, the mentality, the economies uh, in these markets is so different from country to country and even from region to region that to kind of put the NBA model into that uh, atmosphere, I think would be even if they have the venues, which they don't, except for a handful in Germany. But I just, I don't see it. London, though, I think uh, could be feasible. A few more minutes with Marshall Glickman, the founder of G2 Strategic, former president of the Portland Trailblazers. Marshall, let's talk some soccer, some football. Uh, We recently saw each other at the Major League Soccer All-Star Game in Portland, Oregon, and Obviously, again, you are someone who travels internationally, works with sports teams internationally. First of all, your thoughts on the success of World Cup and how that all played out? Well, uh, as far as getting the attention of the world, this is perhaps the biggest sporting event in the world. Uh, And it's the fact that it is, you know, the breadth of it is, is, is really amazing. Now, I am not a fan of FIFA, the international governing body. Uh, I think it's an organization that's corrupt. I think it's an organization that just almost um, leaves me breathless sometimes, some of the decisions that are made. 
putting the World Cup in Qatar, a place where it's going to be something like 120 degrees on the field, is just incredible to me, particularly since there's been numerous resignations at FIFA uh, on bribery charges. And the people resign and then nothing ever happens. It's not like they go to jail. So I'm kind of down on the business side of it. You know, it's, it, it, it blows me away, really, that people continue to embrace and follow FIFA's competition in light of the you know, kind of level and, and, and degree of corruption that goes on. So that aspect is is interesting to me in any case. But the World Cup itself is a great event. Um, you know, I've begun to fall in love with the sport. I'm working with the French Professional Soccer League now, so I'm becoming much more familiar uh, with the economics. And the economics are another thing that is uh, almost shocking to me. I mean, you know, the reality is you have probably 10% of the soccer clubs in Europe that control 90% of the economy of soccer. And that is a big problem because it's the same teams year after year after year. And the teams that are owned uh, by you know, wealthy Russians, wealthy uh, Arabs, wealthy Americans, those teams spend an unlimited amount of money on players. There's no checking the system of check and balance, there's no draft, there's no salary cap, there's really nothing. And so they just go out and buy players. And what it means is when a, when a mid-size or a smaller club brings up a great player, that great player ultimately is sold um, in order to pay the bills because these clubs are losing so much money, Brian. It's just mind-boggling. And then you think, well, the big clubs are making money, but the truth is they're bringing in a lot of revenue, but they're spending far more than the revenue they bring in. So many of these big clubs are losing numbers like 25, 30, 35 million a year. Wow. So it's been really rather shocking to me. You don't have, you know, a buy and sell market the way you do in the States, although that's beginning to change. And then you have a culture with a lot of the big clubs of, you know, giving away literally thousands of free tickets, a lot of times in the best seating, meaning the most expensive seating. You have a lot of customs and habits that have been built up over decades that need to change, which is, you know, good for me because that's why they're bringing me in, which is to kind of knock some sense into them uh, because the reality is the well is beginning to run dry. Many of these clubs used to rely on municipalities to help subsidize the operation of the club itself. Those dollars uh, are drying up. And then you're finding owners, uh, you know, I would say more reluctant to the idea of subsidizing a soccer team, which really is just, you know, for, I don't know what for, ego reasons, uh, you know, it's a hobby for some. So there's a lot of change that's going to happen in professional soccer not only in Europe, I think, but worldwide. The Premier League, of course, is more like an American model. And so there's some, you know, the economy of the Premier League is much better. Uh, the German League is fair. The rest of it is really kind of a disaster. So it's been very interesting uh, to me, and it's a great education. 
Uh, but, you know, the, obviously the quality of play is at a very high level. Um, and the stadiums are, you know, they're full for the big games and they're not so full for the not so big games. Unfortunately, most games are not so big games. <laughs> It'll be interesting to follow. That's all the time we have with Marshall Glickman, the founder of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, thanks for taking the time. We'll chat with you soon. Really great to talk to you, Brian. Thanks. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger, powered by Postano. Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt a lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Maury Brown with the bizofbaseball.com. You can find him on Twitter at bizballmory. He's been a guest on this show many times before. Maury, how are you? I'm doing well today, Brian. How are you? I'm doing really well. So we know that Major League Baseball is down to the final three candidates for MLB commissioner to replace Bud Selig. Let's start with who's on the search committee. Like, who is making the decision on selecting the replacement for Bud Selig? Well, Bill DeWitt, the owner of the Cardinals, is the guy spearheading it. It's a seven-man committee um, that basically reaches across baseball. You see a cross-section of owners, um, both small and mid-market and large market, which you know you would expect. But I mean, it's an interesting group of of members. Two of them make sense. I, I and what we I'm sure you, we can bring this up. But I look at this as more like one of these things doesn't belong here, um, even if he does. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think it's interesting. You know, we'll talk about the the three finalists in a moment. But you know, baseball has been an in-house type of organization for a long time, and you know, I've talked to some people that really thought, hey, it would be great if Baseball looked outside of their own house, so to speak, for a replacement for Bud Selig, maybe someone from the general business world or someone who doesn't have as much of a baseball background. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. Why would you say that is? Is it just because they've always done it this way, or is there another reason? Well, I think it goes back to prior to Bud Selig. I mean, that's really where you were at prior, whether it was Bowie Kuhn or Faye Vincent, you know, whether you had individuals that were involved with Coca-Cola or whether it was the auto industry or what have you, you know, Peter Uberoth. I mean, you can go down the line. Everybody was outsiders. And they they stumbled upon something with Bud Selig. I mean, he was, of course, extremely surprising um, that you would have a small market owner run the league and then to have him be in place be the second longest tenured commissioner in baseball behind only Kennesaw Mountain Landis was a pretty remarkable thing. And the, and the point being at the time was that um, because Selig had quote-unquote skin in the game, he would better understand it. But the dynamic has changed a lot, Brian. I mean, it, it really has. You mentioned the in-house thing, and I, 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 uh, I, I need only look across the aisle over to the NBA and the transition that happened between David Stern and Adam Silver to kind of see where transitions are going the, the the business side of things and and the complexity of 
league operations have just made it to where you have to have a general understanding of what's going on internally. And I think that that's what's going to happen here with Major League Baseball. You know, I don't disagree with the strategy, and I think you bring up good points. I go back to uh, a scenario a few years ago where uh, Nike chairman Phil Knight stepped down, and they brought in a guy named William uh, Perez, who came from Johnson & Johnson. So they really went outside the Nike realm, brought someone in who wasn't familiar with the lingo and the customs of doing things at Nike, and it failed miserably, and they ended up bringing on Mark Parker to be the CEO. He's been the CEO for the last several years, and he was someone who had risen through the Nike ranks, understood the culture at Nike. So, you know, I totally get the it's great to have an Adam Silver who's been in-house, or it's good to have someone who's been in-house at Major League Baseball step in, and maybe you don't want to go totally outside the realm to someone like the William Perez from Johnson & Johnson because it can fail miserably. All right, let's talk about the three candidates, the three finalists that supposedly are going to be voted on by the owners on August 14th, the last day of the owners' meetings. Who are the three finalists? Well, we have Tom Werner from the Boston Red Sox who's the CEO. Uh, we have Tim Brosnan, who's the executive vice president of Major League Baseball for their business arm. And we have Rob Manfred, who's the COO of Major League Baseball right now and is the former executive VP of labor for the league. So those are your three candidates. And as I mentioned uh, at the, you know, earlier, um, Werner clearly is the different guy out of this mix. You've got Brosnan and Manfred, who are both as highly placed as you can get within the commissioner's office, and you have Werner there in the mix, who, um, while has done a, a very good job with the Red Sox, has a bit of a checkered past with his prior ownership with the San Diego Padres. For those that don't remember, um, Werner's background really was a producer in television. Um, if you see the Casey Werner programs from the 90s, one of them was Roseanne. So he cross-promoted and <laughs> less than a month into his ownership. He thought it'd be great to have Roseanne Barr come out and sing the national anthem. And it, it, it goes down in history as one of the worst debacles ever. <laughs> she sang it horribly. She spit at the end of it. It really disgraced the national anthem, and it just kind of went downhill from there for for Werner and the and the Padres. So um, that's going to come up. If, if I'm talking about it right now, you know, it's different than somebody sitting there going, you know, the owners, of course, are his boss. If he does good for them, then they may forget about it. But I I dare say that there are going to be us in the media and certainly fans that won't remember that if Tom Werner is selected. Yeah, I mean, he was with he created the Cosby show as well. So he's had a lot of success outside of baseball. You can't argue with the success the Red Sox have had. And, you know, as you pointed out, you've got Brosnan and uh Manfred who are clearly deeply tied to Major League Baseball, high-ranking executives and and Warner's kind of the wild card. So in your opinion, Warner is definitely more of a long shot than the other two, right? Yeah, I do. And and mostly because I really feel that there's one candidate that um, with some exceptions, which we'll get to, um, really outshines the rest of them. Um, you, at this point, there's such criticalness, and we brought this up earlier when we were talking about the differences between what happened with Bud Selig and those prior individuals that were outside of baseball. And baseball is in a really unique position in terms of media rights and, and the digital space. Now, Bob Bowman, who's the CEO of and president of MLB Advanced Media was initially on the list. He did not make the cut for the finalists, but he was there as well. And so you start to get into this understanding that the owners 
see how important the business arm is in terms of media rights and other other aspects. Um, and and that's why you you sit there and you look and you go, well, part of the the thing that I think baseball is looking at, and I think the NBA did this as well. When times are good. What you're really trying to do is perpetuate a philosophy and an ideology that has been successful. And you don't really want to monkey around with that too much if you can help it. In the past, of course, the, the league, Major League Baseball, was uh, constantly in a sense of turmoil. The owners were constantly fighting each other. And when they weren't fighting each other, they were fly, fighting the MLBPA and the, and the players in terms of labor disputes. So I think that it, it really boils down to, to that. I think that what you're, you're finding is a case where there's going to be a candidate that's being groomed, and, and certainly Seelig has set this up, to where you are going to transition to basically have a proxy for the Seelig ideal move forward. And that's, I think, appealing to the owners. I think the owners would love to have Bud stay on for life, but he seems to have different ideas. I think he's finally had enough and wants to retire and do some other things. Maury Brown from the biz of baseball.com is our guest. You can find him on Twitter at bizballmory. So essentially, Maury, what you're saying is Rob Manfred is very much the equivalent of Adam Silver with the NBA. He's been groomed for this. He seems to be the hands-on favorite to, uh, get this job. And he is. And, and here's why. When, um, Selig said he was going to retire, officially retire in September of last year, not more than two weeks later, there was an announcement that Manfred was moving from the executive VP of labor up to the COO position. And this was substantial in the sense that prior to that, you have to go back to 2010 when Bob Dupay was the COO and president of Major League Baseball before he was basically pushed out the door. And up until that time, Selig was doing everything. So to have Manfred move into doing the day-to-day operations of Major League Baseball was a significant change. And then underneath that, they moved Dan Halem in basically as a guy that's going to take over where Manfred was at. So the whole thing has been positioned to have Manfred move into the commissioner's chair. For, for the last three labor agreements, Manfred has been sitting at the table. I mean, we no longer have the commissioner basically negotiating. They found out that that was just too messy. So basically the the ceiling ideals and ideology were basically pressed forward by Manfred and the relationships that he had built with the MLBPA. And so you're really kind of continuing that that direction when you move him into the commissioner's position. And and yet again I, I get back to this thing there are the business partners and the amount of money that flows into all of the sports leagues now is so significant that you don't want to get your business partners potentially concerned about some radical shift if there's no need for a radical shift. And in Major League Baseball, with you know you have gross revenues hitting $8 billion. They could, they're going to cruise up on $9 billion without breaking a sweat with all these me- local media deals. And so I, I really think that with the exception of a couple owners that are, are creating a stink right now, that I think that it's really wired for, for Rob Manfred. But, you know, I guess we'll find out on Thursday of next week. That's going to be when they're going to take the vote. If they don't take the vote, it means the votes aren't there for Manfred. And then you've really only got one more owner's meeting before Selig's, um contract expires in January, and that would be in November after the World Series. Whoever is the next commissioner, it seems to me there are three bucket list items that top the priority list. Number one, you've got the CBA that expires in 2016, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. Number two, 
you know, you still have the storyline about performance enhancing drugs that's hanging over uh, Major League Baseball. The Anthony Bosch arrest recently certainly brings that news back to the forefront. And then number three, uh, the broadcast and digital rights. And what do those go for and how do those grow? Would you agree that those are the three main bucket lists that the next commissioner will have to deal with? Well, they are, and they, it really kind of pushes forward. I mean, I guess I, if I was to put in a fourth one, it would probably be the issues around um, the Oakland A's and territorial rights and the situation that's going on in Tampa Bay. Those are really the teams that, that are, are, are struggling a bit to, to try and get new facilities. But that those battles are always going to rage on. But, yes, I mean, the, back to Manfred, and this is why he seems like such a, a, a no-brainer candidate to me. He's the one that's basically been – the strong arm and the one that's been driving forward the drug policy. I mean, Selig is a big, if you talk to people that, that know Selig and, and, and work with him, Selig is a big picture guy. He's, ex, he's exceptionally bright in that sense, and he works the phones and basically gets the owners in line, communicates with them, and gets them unified. I mean, that's been Selig's great strength, is his ability to unify the owners and have them walk in lockstep. Manfred has been the guy that's basically been charged with taking that philosophy and pushing it forward. So the drug policy has really been Manfred as well on the labor side of things because he has to work with the, with the Players Association. So it all plays out into that. And as far as the TV deals go, that's something where Brosnan is still going to be there. And maybe it might be one of those situations to where you go, you know, the media rights thing with Bowman doing the job that he's doing so well and the job that Tim has done, you know, it's really going to be a question as to whether, you know, you continue to see the local media rights and television, whether that bubble bursts, because it's starting to basically, I think the weight of it all is starting to collapse in on itself. It's not just Major League Baseball, it's ESPN, it's the collegiate, you know, networks. It just goes on and on. The amount of money that's going to be passed down to consumers has become so big. But eventually, you know, you're going to get cord cutters. They're going to move all to the Internet, and then that'll fall on Bowman. So if you were going to choose out of the three, if it was me and – I'm going to look at Manfred because he's got more of a big picture plan and knows, understands Selig's um, position. And the guys that are going to be in the trenches for the media right deals knows those better than anybody. To bring somebody in to replace those guys, I think, is actually more difficult than it is to replace Manfred in the position that he is going back to where Selig was at, which is that for the better part of four years, there was no COO. There was no president. You basically move back into that model and the league moves back into that position. It's a little early for this discussion because he's still got a few more months on the job. But at the end of the day, and I know this is kind of a tough question to answer in just a, a few minutes, but what's the legacy of Bud Selig? Well, I mean, you know, com- this is a, a difficult question, and it's easy at the same time. You know, compared to his predecessors, he he's brilliant. I mean, in that sense, and you cannot look back at the league and find a more successful time in baseball than it is right now. Now, some of that is ne- just pure luck. And the television situation was going to happen without Bud Selig or not. You know, the change in, in how, in the DVR era, sports has become king of content, um, that, that was going to happen with or without Bud Selig. But the ability to basically get the drug policy in place, albeit with Congress standing behind him holding the stick to basically get the Players Association, but this idea that through peace you could basically, uh, you know, have prosperity – is something that I think Selig will be remembered for. Now, there's a bunch of other stuff. The Oakland situation is ridiculous. You know, there, there's that situation that they're in with San Jose and the Giants and, the, and that issue, I think has gotten to be um, a very difficult one. 
And as a sidebar, it kind of lends back into kind of the changes in how much money is involved on the business side of things. I think that the owners, in some cases, are willing to forgo fines or the the wrath, quote-unquote, of the commissioner due to the monies that are involved in some of these deals now. They're willing to take that risk that they wouldn't prior, and it puts the commissioner in a heck of a position. You know, none of the other owners are willing to go out on a, on a ledge for the situation in, in Oakland or the situation in Tampa Bay. And so, you know, the commissioner becomes almost toothless in that sense. But, I mean, Bud's going to be remembered for some things. You know, I, they'll say that he was asleep on the clock or wasn't, uh, you know, or knew of it outright of the steroid situation. And that, that'll be the thing that'll, that'll dog him. There's always going to be pluses and minuses. But, I mean, at the end of the day, he's an employee of the owner's. And he could never have done any better for the owners than he's done over the length of this tenure. We're joined by Maury Brown with the biz of baseball.com. Follow him on Twitter at bizballmaury. All right, Maury, a very busy MLB trade deadline. You know, a lot of times you see guys traded for prospects, but we saw some big, big trades. John Lester got traded to the A's, David Price to the Tigers. What did you make of the trade deadline? Well, I, I, I had to almost lay down and take a break. It was so, you know, it was almost swimming. You know, I, I, when you see guys like Ken Rosenthal from Fox Sports say, man, I got to sit down, that was something. It, it, was, it was one of the busiest and most exciting trade deadlines that we've seen. And, and, you know, for those that don't know, it doesn't mean the trades don't continue to happen. It just means that you, you go through it without the, the complexity of the waiver system that, that you have to go through now. But, I mean, you, it was interesting in the terms of philosophies, and this, I think, is an addition, and this, once again, speaks kind of to Bugs Selig, was the expansion of the additional wild cards that have come in. Teams that would have normally been completely out of the running are now, you know, bona fide contenders, and you've got teams now that are really trying to be competitive. Now, at the top of the chain, you really saw major contenders, those that are at the head of their divisions, making the biggest moves. You know, and you saw some of the, some of these teams that are the, you know, the ones that have been um, behind the the um, economic eight ball making moves for the future. So that was your David Price deal to try and basically, you know, get something before he hit free agency, and they would get nothing in return in terms of prospects. And you certainly saw this with the Boston Red Sox. I have to give Ben Charrington a whole lot of credit. I mean, they're they're willing to go and not only make minor tweaks and try and say, well, it's just a bad season. They're willing to blow it up entirely to make something happen, and the trade with the A's was a good example of this. I mean, you go out and get Suspedes, and he is going to, at some point, absolutely rip it up in Fenway due to the short porch in left field. And, you know, and you're, you're getting other prospects. They made a bunch of moves that basically set themselves up for next year. In the meantime, the A's, of course, positioned themselves, and so did the Tigers, to face each other in the ALCS. I think that the A's, of course, with Billy Bean, he just wants to get past the ALDS. You know, that's been the problem with the poor A's. They just can't seem to get out of the first round. Well, they're positioning themselves for the ALCS, and I think that you're going to have a dogfight and a great matchup, potentially better than the World Series, if you get into a situation where the Tigers and the A's face off with two outstanding pitching staffs. So I, it was it was very exciting. I, I would have liked to have seen more out of some of the other teams. I think that um, that you, you, that Jack Zorenzik is really in the hot seat with the Mariners in terms of you know this is the end of his contract, and he didn't really do a heck of a lot. He did some things to make them better. The unfortunate thing was so did the rest of the division, uh, with the Rangers possibly the exception. 
and and that's really I think going to come back and bite him. I mean, yeah, if they make the playoffs, it'll be you know strictly a miracle. They'll have to be some team just absolutely collapsing and them racing forward. It's going to be a dogfight for them to get in, basically with that last wild card spot. You know, the Lester trade really shocked me. Uh, Moneyball. Anyone who's seen the movie or read the book. It was so against Billy Bean, you know, renting this player who I believe is going to cost them $4 million for the remainder of the season in John Lester. Uh, they already made the Samarja trade uh, before that. He's really going for it this year. Is that going to potentially hurt the A's beyond this season? No, I don't think so. I mean, they're, they're really stacked with prospects to that in that sense. But I mean, it, it is. It becomes that question. I mean, how long can you sit there and go, "Wow, we're 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 fantastic in the regular season, and we just don't have a rotation to compete in the postseason?" And at a certain point, you just have to, unfortunately, play the game. And and that's that that I think was the situation that they were left with. I mean, they got Johnny Gomes thrown in the mix, you know, and that's another thing, you know, along along with it. But I mean, it really is one of those situations to where. You know, there's some sense of platooning. I mean, you lost power by losing Suspedes. I mean, there was no way in this world that you were going to get Johnny Gomes to match that. But, I mean, it is one of those situations to where they'll platoon and they'll basically try and do something in it. But they saw that they needed to have a rotation that could go more than five games. I mean, they need to get into a seven-game series and be able to go toe-to-toe. And, I mean, if you're looking across, they, you know, Justin Verlander said it, but everybody was thinking it. You know, they made that move because of the Tigers, and, and there's good reasons for it. I mean, you go pick up David Price, and you look at that lineup. I mean, Lester or Verlander now is arguably your number five starter with the season he's having, and that, that's a heck of a thing. So I, I really think that, you know, I, it was a situation to where I think the A's finally saw that, you know, winning the division wasn't going to be good enough, and, and they were going to try and do something more about it. We'll see how it turns out. I mean, you know, um, you can second guess yourself to death at some point, but at some point you got to try and drop the hammer and make something happen in the season. They can always go back to Moneyball and where they were prior um, if they don't make it, but you know you got to give it a try every once in a while. Two more quick questions for you. One, you know, I thought the price move was interesting to Detroit because Max Scherzer is a free agent at the end of the year. If you don't get a deal done with him, at least you've got Price now there with Verlander and Porcello and, and some of the other arms. The other question I would ask you is. Do you see a scenario where Lester goes back to Boston and Boston ends up, you know, basically getting Cespedes out of the deal uh, for renting Lester to Oakland for a few months? Yeah, I mean, it's a possibility, but, you know, I think you're going to probably see, you know, the 140 to $150 million range for Lester. I mean, it really is going to depend on what happens, you know, here down the stretch and then what he does in the postseason. And that, I think, was something that um, – I think the Red Sox weren't willing to go with. I mean, I, I will give this to the Red Sox in some senses. They're not in many ways. They're, they are the same and yet different than the Yankees. Where the Yankees get, you know, albatross contracts around their neck, or the, you know, the Phillies, I guess, are the best example of this right now. You can be competitive and go out and get veterans, but, it, it, you know, it's just a difficult dance based upon the amount of money that can come into play, and you lose your flexibility. And... Uh, when I, I just keep remembering a couple of um, winter meetings ago, I was talking to Pat Gillick, the Hall of Fame general manager. He was, of course, with the Mariners. He was with the Toronto Blue Jays when they won their two World Series, and he was with the Phillies when they won theirs. And I asked him about these deals for pitchers, and he got real serious. I mean, he goes, I find the uh, the amount of money that's going into them and the durations of these contracts 
to be to really hogtie and completely remove flexibility for clubs. And so that may be the the only reason that Lester doesn't come back. I think that he's very much wanted there, but you know, in free agency, the the amount of money could just really kind of change things and the duration. That's the key thing. The contract length for pitchers have gotten so long and the risk becoming so high that I think that clubs, some clubs are going to start looking the other way with some of these guys. Very last question, and this has nothing to do with the business of baseball, but I look at Clayton Kershaw and I look at Felix Hernandez and, you know, going back to the days of Greg Maddox and Pedro Martinez, I don't know that I've seen two better seasons from pitchers than I'm seeing from Kershaw and King Felix this year. Well, I mean, it's certainly Kershaw. It's been, it's been ridiculous. He got a no decision yesterday, and that was that was disappointing for on some level. I mean, when you start to get to that stage, um, you're really starting to to get into uh, you know true greatness. And he, you know, he's been more than durable. I mean, he's doing complete games. He's going out there. He's got to control. And Felix is the same way. You know, the difference, of course, is is that. Um, Kershaw is getting the limelight in Los Angeles with the big brand and the large, second largest market in the country. And the Dodgers are bona fide contenders on one level, you know, for the National League, um, certainly for the National League West, although the Giants may think differently about this. But, you know, if they, if they win the, the National League West, they, they want to get all the way in and basically get to the World Series. And if you got Clayton Kershaw on your rotation, you know, that's just going to add to it. But, yeah, I mean, the thing that amazes me, Brian, it's that I have a lot of conversations going on right now about whether baseball is dying and the fact that there are a lot of kids that aren't playing Little League anymore. And let's not discount that that is a concern on one level. But, you know, we've, we've got 30 teams. The season is long. And I think everybody thought that what would happen would be a dilution of pitching talent. And it's exactly the opposite. We've never seen, albeit a lot of injuries, to some of the some of them, we we're seeing a, 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 an absolute halcyon error for pitchers right now, and that's a, a surprising thing, you know. When you when you're starting to sit down and, and look at that, but yeah, I mean Kershaw and Hernandez, I think you're going to look at that, and or Felix, yeah, and look at it and just say that it's going to be uh, a, a golden era for pitching right now. Everyone knows the stats on Kershaw, but the stat that really jumped out to me with uh, Felix is. He's had one game this entire year where he's allowed more than three earned runs. I mean, that is phenomenal. Yeah, it is. I mean, then this is kind of the you know the sad thing with the Mariners. Imagine what they could do if they could get the rest of it together. Now, granted, they're actually their pitching rotation isn't um, isn't terrible by any stretch. They 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 needed help basically on the offensive side. But I mean, that's kind of the sad thing. You you don't want to see um, a pitcher that great on a non contender. And, and that's why it would be great to see the Mariners try and pull together and get something to happen in the next couple of seasons. It's going to be very difficult for them. Well, and look at Robinson Cano. He goes to Seattle, and he's all but disappeared from the grid. I mean, it's just amazing. He was regarded as a fantastic offensive player and obviously got that huge contract before the season. But, you know, people just don't talk about him anymore now in Seattle. Well, and that's just because that's Seattle, I think. I mean, if you look at him, he's actually been a, a, a bright spot. He's done I, – I was actually surprised. I think that he's actually done better. He's done his job, right, for what he's doing. But the difficulty, of course, is the same thing. I mean, one player does not make uh, – baseball is very different than other sports. You can have a quality quarterback, although you have to have receivers. In the NBA, you can have one player and have him be a complete difference maker. In baseball – you know, you you take a guy without protection in the lineup, 
and and you can see it completely change. You just pitch around him. You know, you know, well, I'm not going to let you beat me. I'll let those other guys try and beat me. And if they can't, then that renders that guy toothless. So, you know, the Mariners, you know, they didn't do anything at the trade deadline. They seem to be stuck in that mode where they don't do much at the trade deadline. Maybe they'll do something in the offseason. Find more baseball goodness from our good friend Maury Brown at thebizofbaseball.com or follow him on Twitter, a must-follow on Twitter, at bizballmaury. Maury, thanks as always for taking the time. No problem, Brian. You have yourself a good day. You too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Then I'll only stay with you one more night. Hi, it's Brian Berger. Here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pastano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pastano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pastano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. We are back to wrap up this edition of Sports Business Radio. Again, thanks to our sponsor, Pastano. Follow them online at Pastano.com or on Twitter at Pastano, P-O-S-T-A-N-O. Thank you to Rand Gatlin from Yahoo Sports. Thank you to Marshall Glickman, the president of G2 Strategic. Also, thank you to Maury Brown with Forbes.com. Does a great job covering sports business for them. Thank you to our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, and Doug Zanger. Also, uh, I had a chance this past week to... Uh, participate in the media game sponsored by Castrol of the uh, Major League Soccer All-Star Game. It was in Portland, Oregon, which is where this show is based, and went to Providence Park, played in the media game, didn't get any concussions, came away without injury. It was a lot of fun. So thanks to Dan Cordemanch and Sean Dennison and all the people at Major League Soccer who did a fantastic job putting on the MLS All-Star Game in Portland, Oregon this last week. Lots of great community events, Lots of great parties. The game itself was fantastic, seen in over 150 countries on ESPN2. So a big success for Major League Soccer. It was good to have them in our backyard, and I thank them for their hospitality. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just click on the iTunes icon on the front page of sportsbusinessradio.com, or you can just go directly to iTunes and type in Sports Business Radio. We're also on apps like Stitcher, Tune in radio and swell. So you can find us in a number of different places. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, 
Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher, former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215.